Hey, listeners, thanks so much for tuning in to another podcast of Hacking History. I'm Mike. I'm Todd. And we're just a couple of old history teachers that love to sit around and talk about history. You know, Todd, I was thinking about that that introduction today when I was coming up here. And, you know, I, I kind of, there's a word in that introduction that kind of hits pretty hard for me. It's, it's old or old. Old. Yeah. And I was sort of thinking about maybe taking that out and, and putting something else in. What do you think? Oh, I'm game for that. Like, I, don't, I don't know that we can deny the reality of our situation, but sure, let's let's add yeah. some falsehoods in here. So, so would it be okay if I just said we're just a couple of handsome history teachers that love to sit around and talk history? I think that's more accurate, actually. <laughs> you think that's more accurate? I was expecting a different response from you on that deal. Well, I don't know. I, I feel like we'd be lying to the listeners. Yeah, yeah not everybody may agree with our accuracy there. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, today, listeners, we have a very special guest. His name is Cash. And uh, Cash is a sixth grade uh, student here at Spearman uh, School District in Spearman, Texas. Cash, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes, my name is Cash. I live in Spearman, Texas. I'm in the sixth grade and I like playing football and baseball and basketball. Uh, I show cattle and pigs and I like to hang out with my friends. And I hear you're a Texas Ranger fan, is that right? Yes, sir. Man, that's so awesome. That's cool. I'm a huge Texas Ranger fan myself. So, hey, I hear you got a pretty amazing Christmas present this year. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yes, sir, I can. I got a, a Henry Lever Action 22. You can't ever go wrong with a Henry rifle. That's for sure. That's on my bucket list. So, I, I man, I'm envious of you there for sure. Um, well, very good. Well, Cash, we're really glad to have you on the podcast today. And I have heard from numerous sources that you are an incredibly bright young man and that you like history. Is that true? Yes, sir. Even about you being a very bright young man? Well, I don't know about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you're humble. You're humble. Now, I know your parents and I know your grandparents, and they're pretty amazing people. So you come from good stock. So I'll, I'll, do you think that's the reason why? You, you do so well in school and in all your events and stuff, or is it just, just natural? Well, I do think that they have helped me and kind of helped me to be able to do what I do. Mm, okay, very good, very good. Well, I agree with you. I think, I think you're right, for sure. Well, listeners, uh, we have a great podcast today uh, on World War One. And one of the great things about this particular topic at this particular time is that it coincides with the great movie 1917 that has just come out in theaters. So if you're looking to go see the movie or maybe you've already been to see the movie and you need a little background information to help tie some things together, uh, we hope that, that this podcast will help you there. So... Todd, what, what have we got on the agenda today if we're breaking it down? Well, if you remember, we started this series about the emergence of world power, talking about Theodore Roosevelt in the previous episode and the Spanish-American War. And this is the part of history that we refer to as world power uh, to our students as a period where the U.S. starts to become exactly that, a world power. 
And uh, within that emergence, uh, we become a dominant force in the world uh, through imperialism on one level, as we talked about in the last episode. And now we have World War I uh, coming in after that. And this is the, you know, a stage that once we come in, uh, we determine the side that's going to win by the side we come in on. So today's episode is going to be, uh, we're going to bounce around a little bit, what got us into it, what were the causes, uh, the technology, because the technology has advanced significantly from previous wars, and this is actually a technological war in many respects. And we'll uh, close it up with some of the major battles as well. Okay, thank you, Todd. Well, I'm going to get us started today with the causes. Uh, if we take a look at the destruction of this war, um, I come up with the number 40 million casualties worldwide. This war is um, like no other war of its time. If you take a look at the history of Europe and the number of wars and conflicts and, and battles that had taken place, I, I'd encourage you to do that. It, it is just amazing at the number of, of wars and, and, and battles and stuff that have occurred over the past three or four hundred years in Europe. So fighting in Europe was definitely nothing new, um, that's for sure. But nothing to this magnitude. We're not talking about another European conflict that had 10, 20, 30, 40,000 soldiers maybe lined up shoulder to shoulder uh, shooting a single shot musket. We're not talking about a few thousand barbarians versus uh, Roman soldiers. We're talking about millions. Um, Russia alone had mobilized over 12 million soldiers. The British Empire, almost 9 million. France, almost 8.5 million. Italy, a little over 5.5 million. The United States, almost 5 million. Um, just the list goes on and on. The, the numbers are just staggering. And so when I say 40 million casualties, you can, you can see how this number uh, built up. So what are the causes of all of this? Well, I try to like I try to think of World War One as a as a bomb that had a really long fuse. Um, tension had been building up ever since the late 1800s, around 1882, um, actually 1879, a little bit before then, and the war won't get started until 1914, and then we know it ends in 1918. Um, but the main causes, if we think about the acronym MANIA, M-A-N-I-A, -A, militarism will be what the M stands for. So at this time, all these European countries, especially Great Britain and Germany, um, are going to start building up a very, very large military force. Last week, we talked about imperialism. And we talked about how the British had had the largest navy by far uh, because they had so many colonies around the world. In other podcasts, we've talked about industrialization and um, how factories were able now to produce military weapons 
just at enormous rates. And so there was a lot of competition in Europe, um, a lot of it built up by imperialism. And um, it needed to be uh, built or, or supported by a strong uh, navy and army. And, and even an Air Force. Air Force would, would start to, to develop at that time as well. So um, it, it, there, was, there was kind of a, a sense almost of a Cold War type era where there was a lot of, um, a lot of tension in that department. And then that would lead to the alliances. So Russia, France, and Britain would form an alliance. Um, starting in 1894, but would finally end it official, or in the, it wouldn't end the alliance, but it would, it would close that alliance in 1907. Later on, the United States jumps into that, um, into that, that unifying force there, but Russia also pulls out in 1917 when the Russian Revolution begins. The Triple Alliance uh, would originally form with Italy, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, and Germany starting in 1882, finalizing in 18, or 1914 is when the Ottoman Empire would jump in. Um, Italy kind of waffles back and forth a little bit. They are with the alliance at the beginning, but then later on they fall out. So. Uh, Bulgaria is a little Eastern European country that will also join the Austrian-Hungarians. And so it's, it's not just real super clear where that border is, especially in Eastern Europe, because there are so many different ethnic groups that are going to, uh, some of the, of the Slavic nations will want to side with Russia, some of them will want to, slap, to side with the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, and so um, but anyway, two major alliances will form. The N will stand for nationalism, or a pride or devotion to one's country. And that had started um, and really spread through the days of, of that empirical buildup. And today we may call it racism. Um, back in the day, they felt um, a strong belief in eugenics, or the belief that one ethnicity was more superior than the other. And so you had that conflict, especially with the Germanic people and the Slavic people of Russia. Um, the I would stand for imperialism. And we had talked quite a bit about that. You know, I think last week, Todd, we, we said that the, the British, or the sun never set on the British Empire. Um, France was almost that way. They had carved up parts of Asia and Africa and uh, Southeast Asia and had just become a tremendous force uh, around the world. They had become very, very wealthy. And then the A, the last thing, would actually be the spark that would get the war going, and that would be with the assassination of the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And Todd, I know you've done quite a bit of study on that. What can you tell us? There? Well, it, it's a very interesting story, especially if you dig deep into the events of the day. You get this group of young guys, the Black Hand, very uh, upset with Austrian control of Serbia. 
Archduke's in town. Uh, they make a plot to kill him. Uh, the details, without me spending too much time on it, but it's it's one of those things where you think everything in the world was just set in motion that we were going to have a war no matter what. Uh, there were, you know, failures on the attempt to assassinate him. Then opportunities just pop themselves back up, and eventually they're successful. Uh, and this triggers, you know, as you're talking about the alliances, this triggers a cascading effect. And uh, if you uh, if you hurt my friend, I'm going to go to battle against you with my friend. And and the cascading effect is we have a world war at that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, Cash, um, from what I understand with the advancements in industrialization and then, of course, the empirical powers, uh, having the wealth, the money, um, what did you come up with on the technological advancements? Well, uh, I'd first like to start with what I, at least I think and what I'm pretty sure most people think of when they think of the advancements made during the war, which is the tank. Uh, the first tank was made by the British. It was their Mark I, and that rolled out in 1915. It was first used at the Battle of the Somme in 1916. Later, the French made the Renault FT, and then the Germans only made small amounts, around 21 of A7V models. I heard that the, the British tanks were, like, really, really huge. Is that right? Yes, sir. And then maybe the French tanks were just a little bit smaller? Yes, sir. The French tanks um, kind of made that more of kind of that tank look that we think of tanks nowadays. Yeah, yeah. So the British tank, it was kind of like the old Conestoga wagon that was crossing the prairie of the 1880s or something. Yeah. So, um, okay, well, very good. And, and the German tanks, uh, from what little I know about them, they were just super, super heavy. They had like, I don't know, feet of thickness and steel or something like that. Is yes, that, sir. Yeah. What else did you find out? Uh, we'll also learned a little bit about the flamethrowers that the Germans used, which I thought that was really interesting, uh, how early they were actually starting to be designed and to be kind of described to the German army. Uh, they were first designed by Richard Fiedler in 1901, and the German army actually decided to first text them in 1911. Uh, they were first used by German army near Verdun in February of 1915. Okay, cool, cool. And uh, and that would kind of lead into the idea of, of poison gas, wouldn't it? Yes, sir, it would. Um, poison gas, at first it, they were trying to figure out how to make it work. And once they did, they tried to. The Germans first tried to use it on the Soviet or the Russian front, and they tried, but the the gas actually froze inside the shells. It was so cold. Mm. But uh, the first six actually successful test was used on in April 22nd, 1915, near Wipers. It was aimed at the French colonial troops, and they actually. But it didn't do just a ton because the French troops actually just, they retreated, but the Germans and couldn't push in with their infantry to actually take their trenches, which would actually become a recurring theme in the war. So you could see this gas coming at you in there. It wasn't just like completely invisible or anything like that. Yes, sir. What, was it the wind that blew it 
towards the enemies is yes sir uh sometimes depending on what kind of gas it was used sometimes they could launch them in artillery shells hmm. but most of the time yeah they would hope the wind and sometimes the wind would actually shift and blow back onto the attacking troops hmm. i've i've actually heard that these soldiers that breathe this poisonous gas in it would just kind of cook your insides is that right Yes, sir. Oh, boy, that would be a really painful way to go, for sure. Hmm. Okay, what else did you find out? Uh, well, I started to think about maybe find some stuff that maybe people don't know as much about and mm -hmm. that aren't given enough attention, which really would be tracer bullets. I mean, really, this revolutionized warfare that people could do at night. Um... They were first attempted by the British in 1950, but they weren't really useful because they were only limited to about 100 meters, and the trail that they emitted was very um, weird, and it just wasn't really working, and you couldn't really see it. That it just kind of move. But then, actually, later they would perfect it in 1916 with the uh, 308 3 model. Okay. All right. And um, so, so these um, these tracer bullets can, um, you know, the British it seemed like were pretty ingenious when it came up when they when it came up with new inventions for war. I knew they were in World War II, but I didn't I didn't know anything about the tracer bullets. So that's very interesting. Yes, sir. Because usually war would be would stop at night, and so the Germans weren't really prepared for an attack at night, and so these bullets would make it where you could see actually where you were firing so you weren't just firing blindly into the night. Right, right. The British, they had such a powerful navy. How did the Germans get over that big hurdle? What what did they do to attack their navy? Well, actually, the Germans used U-boats, which we would now usually refer to as submarines, mm -hmm. and they were sink massive amounts of the British Navy, and so to combat that, the British decided to first use depth charges. Um, they were used to hit the German U-boats um, that would go off at a certain depth. Um, they had... Uh, timer or that would be able to measure the pressure in the water so that it would go off when they went to a certain depth at where the boats would usually be. Um, the Type D was the first produced in 1916 and the first U-boat actually sank would be U-68 and it was destroyed on March 22nd in 1916. Very good, very good. Now the ship I believe that the Navy uses to kind of go after these submarines, that's the destroyer, isn't it? Yes, sir. Awesome. Boy, I tell you, that's, uh, I'm glad I'm born in my day and time, Todd. I tell you, I would not like to be a part of that. And then and then this next one thing that you have here, Cash, that, that's the one that really killed a lot of people, isn't it? Yes, sir. Uh, machine guns. Um, many people think of this as just the really big advancement, and they would cause just massive casualties on both sides. Uh, by 1914, all major combatants had used machine guns, and different models were used by many different countries. Like, for instance, the British would use mainly the Lewis gun. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very good, very good. Well, um, I've got a fun fact 
for y'all. I, I didn't even tell Todd about this cash, so I'm kind of dropping it there. You were talking about um, chemical warfare and, and how they would use like chlorine gas and did they use mustard gas too? I think something like that. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, and so the German soldiers were, they were kind of fancy soldiers. They had a really kind of a suave mustache. And uh, so they'd have the mustache underneath their lip and then they would grow it out on both ends there and then um, kind of try to curl it up a little bit. Have you ever seen that before? Yes, sir. Yeah, I know an old cowboy that kind of had his mustache like that. And anyway, these German soldiers, they were they were kind of um, uh, making their mustaches do that. Well, when they put their gas mask on, well, that just messed all of that up. It actually made it to where the the mustache interfered with how that gas mask would seal around their mouth. And uh, so they thought, well, how can we overcome this? Well, they started to trim the ends of their mustache, and it got smaller and smaller. And there was this corporal in the German army by the name of Adolf Hitler, and he thought that he was just a just a really good-looking fellow with that stupid, dinky little mustache, and uh, it kind of stuck. So if you ever wondered why. Adolf Hitler had that little mustache. Yeah, that that was why. And then, th now this is this is just Mike here talking. I didn't find this in the history books or anything. But when he became dictator of Nazi Germany during World War II, um, I kind of think he kept that to show the German people that he had what he had sacrificed for the German nation in World War One. Maybe that was kind of a symbolic thing. And that's not too far-fetched, is it? No. So the moral of the story is if he didn't have scissors, the world would have been a much better place. There you go. That That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Have you all ever maybe given yourself a haircut? Maybe you didn't have enough money to go to the barbershop, or maybe it was summertime and, you know, you were out gathering cattle and you just got tired of that long hair or something and you decided to give yourself a haircut. Did you ever do that before? Uh... Well, one time me and my friends were just messing around, and I guess we were just messing around with scissors, and because we were spending the night, it was a kid's birthday party, and one kid fell asleep, and so uh -oh. my friends decided that he would trim the entire back of his hair. Well, that's a great idea. Yes, sir. <laughs> I wonder maybe if that's what, what some of the Germans did. They just got a little crazy with trimming their mustache. I don't know. Maybe Adolf Hitler, he fell asleep one night, and the other German soldiers thought, we're going to play a trick on him and trim his mustache way down close, just as a prank. Anyway, okay. Well, Todd, um, you you better pick pick it up here. I'm, I'm kind of losing it. So Come back come back here to reality a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm going to continue on, and I'll start with a little bit of something that is kind of synonymous with World War One, and that's trench warfare, uh, something that's not spoken a lot before. Uh, it is used back into the Civil War era, but it is most widely known uh, in its use in World War One, primarily along the Western Front. You've got two fronts where battles are being fought, in the Western Front being Northern France and Belgium. The trench warfare was basically just digging trenches, digging yourself in, lining your troops up. Uh, there would be a space between the enemy and yourself called no man's land. 
frequently with barbed wire or other things to make it hard to cross. No man's land, given its name, that uh, you get into that area, you're likely dead. You're going to be shot or killed. Uh, these soldiers spent much of their time in these trenches, and there were consequences for it. Now, if you can imagine if it rained, where is it going to go? Into the trenches. The conditions were pretty nasty. Rats, uh, trench foot could uh, set in. Just basically their feet start to rot off from the moisture. Uh, cholera, other diseases, and shell shock can occur as well. Uh, not a not a fun method of fighting. Uh, definitely uh, something that's a little new. You know, talking about all this new technology uh, being introduced, uh, increasing the ability to kill on a larger scale. Uh, you know, we didn't even get to airplanes yet, and use of aerial combat and surveillance uh, as well. Uh, everything is just so you know ramped up on such a broader level than any of these previous wars that have been fought. So, speaking of wars, let's talk a little bit about battles. Uh, the battles I'm just going to kind of run through quickly because I could just spend probably weeks talking about this. And I probably need to apologize to these military history buffs uh, for not going into enough depth on them. Uh, I'm just going to kind of move through them a little quickly. Uh, we get the first Battle of the Marne. Uh, this is east, northeast of France. September 6th through 9th, 1914, we get our French and British forces. Uh, they're fighting an invading German army. This uh, penetrates deep into France. We're talking about 30 miles or so from Paris. The Allied troops were able to check the advance and mount a successful counterattack. On the Eastern Front, we get uh, Russian forces invading German-held regions of Eastern Prussia and Poland. They were stopped short by German-Austrian forces at the Battle of Tannenberg. This is August, late, late August 1914. Uh, eventually, Russians will bail out as they get into a revolution. It's kind of hard to fight a world war when you're in the middle of a revolution. Uh, for them, that'll occur in 1917. Uh, we get the Battle of Gallipoli. Gallipoli? I'm going to apologize for that pronunciation. 1915-1916, lasting about eight months. This is a combined British, French, Indian, New Zealand, Austria, Australia forces with Canadians as well, uh, fighting uh, Turkish Ottoman Empire that had sided with Germany. Hey, Todd, have you ever seen that Mel Gibson movie uh, on that that battle? No, no, I haven't seen. Yeah, it, it's it's an old one. It was it was pretty young. Um, but have you, Cash? Have you seen that old movie? No, sir, I haven't. Yeah, it was. It, it did a great job of showing the Australian forces landing there on the beaches of Gallipoli. Gallipoli, I can never say that correctly either. And uh, how the Ottoman Turks just, 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 just really gave them heck. Heck on it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Battle of Jutland, spring of 1916. This is going to be the biggest naval battle of the First World War. It'll go on from May 31st to June 1st. It pitted British against the German fleet. This is a bloody battle, about 250 ships and 100,000 troops. This occurred in the North Sea. Uh, the Battle of Burden, 1916, beginning February 21st, ending by December 19th of the same year. Uh, it was the most 
you know, was the most savage of all of them, uh, definitely one of the longest. Nearly three quarters of the French army fought in this battle. And we got the Battle of Somme that uh, Cash had mentioned earlier, 1916. This is a massive joint operation between French and British forces against Germans in the Somme area of northern France. The Battle of Cambrai, or Cambria, 1917, uh, northern France. This is around November into December. This is going to be the first time we see battle tanks used on a massive scale in a battle. Uh, then we get some German spring offensives on the Western Front in 1918. Uh, this is going to be the spring. We got German General Erich Ludendorff, uh, his forces attacking the Western Front along the 400 mile strip of land stretching through France and Belgium. Uh, and then we're going to see the ba Second Battle of the Marne coming by that summer, July 15th through August of 1918. Uh, this is the last major German offensive on the Western Front. The attack failed when Allies counterattacked, uh, supported by several hundred tanks. Uh, the Germans, I think, even got their uh, flank, you know, exposed. Uh, this defeat is going to push the Allies uh, back against the Germans, and the Germans are going to end up signing a armistice within about 100 days. So this is probably one of the big turning points on the final push. Mm -hmm. um, from what I understand, on the Russian front, um, things were so bad in Russia in 1917 that they didn't even have enough food uh, to feed their soldiers, that... Um, they didn't have enough guns, and they were out of ammunition, and they would just put these soldiers up on trains and send them to the front to fight the Germans. And, of course, the Russian soldiers would ask for guns and ammo, and the response was, is you need to pick them up off of your fallen comrades. So they were in pretty desperate situation. And, and then, of course, conveniently in 1917, um, we... The, the Americans got into it, and the reasons for that were the Zimmerman telegram, the sinking of the Lusitania were two of the big reasons there. Um, but um, it was General John J. Pershing of the American forces that would come with the Doughboys, as they were called, American troops, uh, loaded them up on ships and, and brought them to uh, Europe and uh, would kind of turn the tide. So... You know, Todd, we talk about these major countries here like the British and the French and the Russians and the Americans would fight on one side against the Germans and the Austrian-Hungarians and the Ottoman Empire and a little bit and a little bit of Italy there, Bulgaria and Serbia. But this truly was a world war because um, you know, it, even the British, one of their major colonies was India. They would have millions of soldiers that would come to Europe to fight the Germans. There was a lot of fighting among the colonies in Africa. So, uh, and then of course in Southeast Asia there was some fighting. The Australians, the Canadians, they would come and side with the British. And so all in all there were over 65 million soldiers who fought in World War One. Yeah, it's hard to comprehend by the today's standards, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, do y'all have anything else you'd like to add?
No, kind of a solemn story, but uh, definitely a discussion of how we became who we are. And as this country starts to emerge in the uh, 20th century as becoming something formidable, and um, this is, you know, part of that story. Yes, it is. It definitely is. Um, encourage you to go watch the movie 1917. Another great World War World War one movie is War Horse. So now it's been out a while, so you might have to to dig around in Netflix or Hulu or something like that. But um, anyway, we are glad that you have tuned in to us today and hope you've enjoyed the podcast. And Cash, we really appreciate you coming and being our special guest today and helping us with some good World War One information. Definitely glad to be here. Awesome. Hope we you hope come. We can always use experts, so we're glad to have you in today. That's right. Can you come back again maybe sometime in the future? Yes, sir, I can. Appreciate it. Very good. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Have a good one.